Well, good morning. What a glorious season where we get to celebrate Emmanuel, who has come. That song, that cry of the heart, Come, Emmanuel, has been the cry of every human heart since the beginning of time. We've wanted to know God. Man was created with a thirst for God, with a need to know Him, to experience Him. And ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, though, there's been a problem. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. But then sin entered the world, and original sin happened, and it got spread to all of us. And because God is holy and perfect, as we've sung about this morning, and we are not, there's a separation. And so there's a problem. How can a holy God dwell with us? How can He be present with us on earth? How can a holy, invisible God be present and alive among us? That's the struggle. But all through the, through the history of the Jews, as God began to reach out and call Abraham and on down the line... God was looking for a way to dwell among us. The Jews called His presence, His glorious presence, in the cloud in various times and places, the Shekinah glory. Shekinah means the dwelling presence of God. We all are looking for Emmanuel, God with us. God, where are you dwelling among us today? But to understand that, I think we need to understand a bit of the history of God throughout history reaching out to us looking for a way to dwell among us, to bring earth to heaven, to intersect heaven and earth together. We've been going through a series the last couple weeks. We began a series, four-week series, on the body of Christ, on the church, and then four different metaphors to describe it. The body, we spent two weeks on that. Today we're talking about temple as the dwelling place of God. And then next week we'll cover two other metaphors. So we want to look today at temple and understand more clearly our role and our place in this world as the dwelling place of God, which in itself is an incredible miracle that God would dwell in us. But we'll get there in a moment. But first, I want us to talk a little bit and understand a little bit of the history of God's dwelling among us, His Shekinah glory dwelling on earth. As we said, Adam and Eve, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. But then sin came. And God, as we've seen in the book of Exodus, as we've been looking through it over the past year, God came in a burning bush to Moses. And He came in a fiery pillar of fire and a cloud that led the Jews through the wilderness and then in a thunderous mountain on Mount Sinai. And then God, and we haven't quite gotten there in Exodus yet, we will. We'll get back to Exodus in the new year. But we see where God said, build me a tabernacle, build me a tent of meeting, a place that will be a visible presence of me on earth. Now, the Jews knew that a tent, a temple, no building, nothing like that could ultimately contain God. But it was a place that God said, this is where I will visibly be present, where you will come to meet with me, where you will come to worship and where you will learn about me. And when they built the tabernacle, we're told at the end, 
of Exodus chapter 40, it says, Then the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, His presence, visible presence, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was present in that tabernacle, and He showed that by His visible presence in the cloud and in the fire. Well, as time went on, several hundred years later, King David, after they settled in the land, said, I want to build a permanent home for God. So he doesn't have to live in a tent, but he can live in a temple. And God said, 2 Samuel chapter 7, No, David, you're not the one to build a temple for me because you're a man of bloodshed. But your son, Solomon, he is the one who will build a temple for me, a place to dwell in. So in 1,000 B.C. or so, Solomon built an incredible temple, a beautiful temple in Jerusalem, and that became the permanent dwelling place for God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, at the end, we see this. It says, Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, the Shekinah glory, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And so the Shekinah glory filled the temple. God was saying, You know what? I dwell in heaven. I'm huge. (laughs) But this is the place on earth where if people want to come meet with me and understand who I am, they can come to the temple. And the temple became a very visible presence of God on earth and a place where they could understand that God was holy. Let me explain a little bit about the temple and just show you what it was like here. There's a smaller picture of it, a front of it. And here you see the design of it. There's a court of Gentiles out here. There's a women's court. The women could only come so close. The court of the priests where they had the altar where they would do all the sacrifices. And to even come in the temple precinct or be accepted by God, you had to bring a sacrifice. And you had to be covered by the blood of that sacrifice, sprinkled with the blood. Here is the holy place where they had the table of showbread and the altar of incense. And the priest could only go in there once a week to make sure there was fresh bread, to make sure the candles were lit or changed if they needed to be lit. But it was a sense that this is a holy place. Not everyone gets to go. And then here was the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that was the most holy place. And it was so holy that only the high priest got to go in one day a year. That was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where he made atonement for the people and he sprinkled blood on the Ark of the Covenant. But it was such a holy place that the people were afraid that the high priest would somehow offend God and God would zap him. (laughs) So they would actually, the people would tie a rope to his foot. In case he offended God somehow and died, they could pull him out without having to enter the Holy of Holies themselves. All of this was instructive because it was showing how God is holy. He's righteous. He's pure. And you must be pure to enter his presence. So that was the temple. It was the visible presence of God on earth. It taught the people that God is present. He's here. 
He's also holy and righteous. And this is where you come to worship him. Three times a year, all the men and all the people came for the great feasts where they worshiped God. You could only approach him bringing sacrifice to be covered by the blood. But the history of the temple goes on. God said, okay, my Shekinah glory has appeared here. But the people rebelled and several hundred years later, in 587 B.C., the temple was destroyed. There's an amazing prophecy, a vision that Ezekiel had given in Ezekiel 10, and we won't turn there, but you can look at it later if you'd like, where he describes this cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, beginning to depart from the temple. The people had offended God, and so his glory was taken from the temple. And shortly after that vision, the temple was completely destroyed. It was gone. Well, you can imagine how this crushed Israel. God, where are you? You're not present here anymore. How? We thought you would never leave the temple. What, what's going on? What is your plan? Seventy years later, the people came back. God brought them back, a remnant, into the land, and they rebuilt the temple. Now, it wasn't nearly as impressive as the original temple, but it was a temple, and they were looking for somehow for God's presence to dwell there in this new temple. But it wasn't as glorious, and that hurt some people, that offended them, that upset them. And in fact, in the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? There were still people alive, some of the older saints, that had seen the temple, Solomon's temple, that had been destroyed. And now they're seeing this other temple that's not very impressive at all. But God speaks to them and says, Have you seen this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? doesn't seem to you like nothing, but I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. The Shekinah glory will be greater. And in this place, I will grant shalom. Well, what's he talking about? The people waited for another 500 plus years. The glory never filled this second temple. Herod built it up into the magnificent structure, but where was the glory? Where was the prophecy of the desired would come and this place would be filled with even greater glory than Solomon's temple? It happened when Jesus showed up. What we celebrate during the Christmas season, Emmanuel as that prophecy says in Haggai, that one will come and greater glory will be here. It happened because God chose to dwell in Jesus, in the incarnate Jesus. Jesus, God in flesh, coming to dwell among us. And remember the wonderful picture where Jesus gets baptized and then the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. The Shekinah glory comes on him. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, as he stood on the mount and Peter and James and John were with him, and the cloud, the bright shining cloud enveloped him, it was a sign that this is my beloved son, he said. Listen to him. (laughs) He is the dwelling presence of God now. It's not a building. In fact, Jesus said that God would bring his judgment on the temple. And you realize the temple has been was destroyed in 70 A.D., and God has never allowed it to be rebuilt. Why is that? 
Because God doesn't want us to get confused. (laughs) He doesn't dwell in a building anymore. He dwelt in the living Son of God who walked among us. But then Jesus was crucified, died. He rose again and walked on earth, but then he ascended in a cloud into glory. So what now? Where does God dwell today? There's no temple. There's no visible Jesus, is there? (laughs) Or is there? Well, that's why in the New Testament, over and over again, in a number of places, we are described, the people of God, the church of God, as individuals and as a local body, we are described as the temple. We are the new temple. We are the place that God has chosen to make himself visible and present on earth. We are the new temple. And you see that in New Testament, in in Pentecost, when the Spirit descended on the early church. Tongues of fire, the Shekinah glory descended on the early church. And now everyone who believes receives the Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit in them. Every one of us who puts our faith in Christ, God's presence is in us. We are the new temple. But we need to understand what this temple is like. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, because in this passage, and then we'll look at 2 Corinthians for a moment, we want to look at these two passages just to give a bigger picture of what it means for us to be the temple. What's the architecture of this temple, this church that we are in this world today? Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the miracle of Emmanuel now, today. <laughs> is we are the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. And he tells us something about the architecture of this building, this temple that we are as the body of Christ. First, he describes the foundation. He says this temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, if any of you have built a house, you know the foundation is really important. It's central to everything that happens in that building. Everything is built on that. If you don't have a good foundation, your house is going to crack and it's going to shift and it's going to fall apart and it will not last when difficult times come. But he says the church foundation is how are we going to to be strong in this world, in this crazy world that we live that's so tough and there's storms come? He said the foundation of the church, God's plan is that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. The apostles are those who walked with Jesus and gave us the New Testament. The prophets are those who God spoke through in the Old Testament and gave us the Old Testament. So what is our foundation as the church? It always has to be the Word. That's the foundation that the entire church has to be built on. God has revealed Himself in His Word. I like the way John Stott describes it. He says, in practical terms, this means the church is built on the New Testament Scriptures. 
They are the church's foundation documents. And just as the foundation cannot be tampered with once it has been laid and the superstructure is being built upon it, so the New Testament foundation of the church is inviolable and cannot be changed by any additions, subtractions, or modifications offered by teachers who claim to be apostles or prophets today. You see, the Scriptures, if you want to have a firm foundation, if the church is to be solidly built, it needs to always focus on teaching and applying God's Word. No matter what kind of church you are, no matter what kind of background, no matter what culture you live in, that's always God's design, that the Scriptures be the foundation being taught and applied. And any time throughout history, and we can see it over and over again, any time a church moves away from teaching the Scriptures as clearly as possible, as accurately as possible, and moves away from that, begins teaching the opinions of men, then that church begins to slide because it loses its solid foundation. And at Cole, that's why we're committed to teaching through the Scriptures. That's our commitment. That's why we do it, teach through books over and over and over again because we believe that's our foundation for everything we do. But the foundation is not the whole temple, is it? The foundation is just what everything else is built on. We don't worship the Bible here. The Bible is not the temple. It's just what the temple is built on. We need to build our lives and our churches on that. So that's the foundation. But secondly, he says, this building, this temple, this spiritual temple, has Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now this word cornerstone, scholars differ on it. It could either mean, and it can in different contexts, either mean a cornerstone, which is you lay the foundation, then you put the first major stone, large stone, in the corner. It's the corner, and every other stone relates to that. That's how you determine how the whole thing is to be built, by how you lay the cornerstone. It's the most important stone in the building. The word could also mean capstone. And the capstone would be like when you build a big arch, stone arch. The capstone is the center stone that you put up last and it holds everything together. And if you ever pull out that capstone, the whole thing collapses. But you know, it doesn't really matter which one Paul intended. We don't know exactly for sure, cornerstone or capstone. What he's saying is this. In the church... The most important stone is Jesus. He always has to be central to everything that happens. He has to be kept in the most prominent and most important position, far more than anything else in the church. He's the one that we all get measured by and evaluated by. And so we should always ask ourselves, am I in right relationship to Jesus? Or am I getting a little bit skewed? a little bit out of whack, a little out of kilter. Is my life getting out of kilter? You ask yourself, huh, maybe I'm not quite rightly related to the cornerstone, to Jesus. I find that in my life. You know, I get too busy and I, and I lose my focus. I get out of whack a little bit. And I find that Jesus has a way, God has a way of bringing me back and reminding me, wait a minute, is Jesus really central in your life? It might be by making me sick, <laughs> 
by having a brother or sister come to me and challenge me. It might be all kinds of ways. Maybe the word convicts me, but God has a way of reminding me and pointing out to me and to all of us, hey, you need to get rightly related to the cornerstone. He's the most important stone. And we as a church need to keep him central. He's the most important part of all we do. And you know, these principles we've just talked about are a good way to evaluate a church, whether it's coal or any place. When you go, are the scriptures foundational? Are they being taught as clearly as possible so people can apply them to their lives? And secondly, is Jesus really exalted? Is he worshipped? Is he central to everything that happens? Is the church seeking to keep him to, as the focus? This is what you look, should look for. Not just because he's the cornerstone, because as the passage goes on, not only is he the cornerstone, but he's the builder of the temple as well, the spiritual temple. Verse 21, in him or by him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. He's the builder. He joins us all together. He's the mortar that glues the parts together. Your place in the temple, your place in the body of Christ, your place in the church, your place here in Boise, you're there because he has placed you there. He's the builder. And he's put around you the people he wants around you based on your gifts, your abilities, and his creation of you. And what does he go on to say? Who is the church made up of? What are the materials that this building is built with? My house is built. It's a wood construction house. What are the materials that the church is built of? Verse 22, and in him, you two are being built together become, to become a dwelling of God in the spirit. We are the parts, aren't we? We're the stones. As Peter says, we're the living stones. It's us. We're, we are the temple. The Spirit's in each one of us, but the Spirit dwells in us corporately as well. We become the dwelling place of God. So God in His miraculous, brilliant way said, you know, this is how I will now dwell on earth. I will take people who are messed up, <laughs> struggling, dysfunctional, from all kinds of backgrounds and races, from all kinds of families, different genders. I'll take single people. I'll take children. I'll take married people. I'll take families. I'll take seniors. I'll take everything I've created, all people. I will call them to myself and I will build them into a temple and in that place is where I will dwell. So he fits us together and, and you know, with all our sharp points and and all, and you know, we're kind of going, wait a minute, I don't know that I want to be right here. <laughs> and yet he fits us together in his brilliance and he rounds us off, grows us up, and he puts us where he wants us. And somehow in his miraculous way, when people look at the church, we are the only God they see. They see God in us. In all our weakness, in all our struggle, but we become something glorious. And it's not because of us, is it? We're not, we're not, we don't have it all together. It's because of Him. It's because of His choice to put us together. We are part of something glorious. We become the living temple of God. 
And so we become the only Jesus with skin on that most people will ever meet. You and me and us as the corporate body of Christ. That's God's plan. That's Emmanuel. That's God with us on this earth. But how do we stand out? How are we different? What should be different about us than the world around us if we're different, if we're the dwelling place of God? I want to show you a slide here, a picture. This is Coventry, England. But you could go, you could have a picture of many places in the world, both in Europe, U.S., wherever. See, as people built churches, physical churches, they said, you know what, we're going to put a spire, a steeple, on our church so that even though we're in the middle of town, we're surrounded by all these other buildings, we are different. It's as if, and I think this was intentional, but it's as if they were saying, you want to know where God is? You want to find out about Him? You want to understand His presence? We will point you to God. And so the churches became the visible place where people could look and see, that's where I go to find out about God. Well, we are now (laughs) the church. We are the visible presence of God. But there needs to be something different about us. Those buildings have steeples. What do we have that's different? Now, for a lot of us, we think pretty simply about it. We think, well, okay, we're to be holy, right? We're to be holy like God is holy. But what does that mean? Uh, Don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance. Don't play cards. You know, a lot of the church throughout history has tried to figure out, okay, what are the rules that make us different from the world? Is that our steeple? Well, I think a good passage that helps us understand how we're to be different is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So turn with me there if you would. We'll be starting in verse 14. And I just want to give us five characteristics that make us stand out and be different. But before we do, I I want to challenge us a little bit. George Barna has done a number of surveys. And in these surveys, he's discovered that when you look at born-again Christians, these are people who say, yes, I'm born again. I've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. I've trusted Him as Savior. He says among born-again Christians, the values, the ways of thinking, the morals are not much different than the world around us. In a recent one, he said, for example, just 33% of born-again, or excuse me, among born-again busters, and that's a category, ages 23 to 41, among born-again busters, nearly twice as many, 59% agreed, representing a majority of young adults, agreed in what? Agreed that Living together before marriage or outside of marriage is okay. 60% of born-again Christians between ages 23 and 41, that's almost exactly the same percentage as non-Christians, the world around us. So his conclusion is, the research shows that people's moral profile is more likely to resemble that of their peer group than it is to take shape around the tenets of a person's faith. That's a challenge to us, folks. What is our foundation of our lives? Is it God and His truth? Or do we look like the world around us? What should be different about us? 
Well, I think Paul's challenging the Corinthians in this passage in 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 14, he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Don't be tied together. And this has broad implications. And then he describes what he means by that. He says five things. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Now that word translated in common, it's, it's the word partnership. What partnership have righteousness and wickedness? A partnership is a commitment to work together toward a common goal. That's what a partnership is. I think what he's saying is that, folks, if you're a believer, if you're the temple of the living God, you need to have different goals than the people around you. See, the goals of someone in the world are happiness, comfort, ease, success, wealth. Those, those are the goals of the world around us, and you could add to that list. But he's saying if you're a believer, your goals should be very different. To build the kingdom of God, to please God, not yourself. To follow Him, to trust Him, to be obedient. You see, our goals should be very different. I appreciate one of our elders, Dwayne Gray, and I could give many examples, but he's just one of our elders who has been at Hewlett Packard for quite some time, and Dwayne has turned down opportunities for advancement over and over again because he believes that it's far more important to be able to control his life and his time so that he has time to focus on ministry and on his family than to advance in the world. His goals are different from the world, and it's a light. It's an example to others around him. We are to have different goals than the world around us, and that reveals God. Secondly, we're to have a different lifestyle. Notice he says, For what fellowship can light have with darkness? Light versus darkness. Picture of morality. What's your, what's your lifestyle? What fellowship? What kind of shared life? He says, no, we have a different life as believers. Your lifestyle should be different. I've told my kids over and over again, you know what? If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to be weird. The Bible says we're peculiar people. We're strange. We don't fit in this world. And you know what? They've, that, they've struggled with that, but they've learned to embrace that. Why? Because that's who they are in Christ. We are to live differently, have a different kind of lifestyle. And they've said over the years, you know, well, so-and-so gets to do this and -and so-and-so gets to do that and why can't we do this or why whatever. And we just say, you know what, our standards are different because we're followers of Christ. And our lifestyle will be different. It's hard, but our kids have learned to thrive on being different. Have you? And, of course, our major lifestyle difference is that we love, we give our lives away for the sake of other people. That's what should characterize us more than anything, is love. We should have different goals, a different lifestyle. We should have different values than the world around us. Verse 15, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial, or Satan? What harmony? That word in Greek is symphony, symphony where we got our word symphony, where there's this beautiful harmony. But he's saying there's no harmony between Christ and Belial. You shouldn't be saying the same thing. You shouldn't have the same values as the world around you. 
We should live with a different value. We should experience a disharmony with people at work or wherever you are. Jeannie and I have relatives. We love them dearly. We enjoy it when we get to be with them. But their values are very different. They live for financial success and they make a lot of money and you see them pouring their lives into that and at the cost of relationships. And they have relationships that are damaged and falling apart. But see, our values are different. Our values are we focus on relationships. It's more important than money. It's more important than things. And pleasing God is more important than anything, living out the values that he's given us. And what that means, though, is that we are disharmonious with those around us. We don't fit. And if you fit at work, surrounded by non-Christians, or if you fit in your family, something's wrong if you're a believer, right? I mean, that's what he's saying. We're the temple of the living God. We don't fit very well in this world. We have a different treasure. He goes on to say, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? The word there is portion. It's your inheritance. We should have a different... What do we treasure? What are we looking for? You know, is our treasure in heaven so that even if things get taken away in this world and we suffer, do we as Christians, are we able to let them go even though it's hard? Because our treasure is really in heaven, that makes us stand out because the world cannot handle losing things. We should have different treasure. And finally, we should have a different master. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols, he says in verse 16. The word agreement, it's talking about having an agreement where you have a contract relationship with someone to do what they've asked you to do. We have a different master. Who's the master of someone in the world? It's self and ultimately Satan. But we as believers should live with a different master. Well, I've got to do what Jesus tells me to do. He's my master. He's my Lord. And that should stand out as different from others around us. So even though we're built in the midst of the world, we live surrounded by everyone else around us, a non-Christian world. Yet, by these, in these ways, we live differently. Even though we look the same, don't we all look like all the non-Christians around us? There's nothing physically, visibly different about us. You know, we're all pretty ordinary looking on the outside. But when you have the Holy Spirit in you, you live a different way, different lifestyle, different values, different master. And that reveals the presence of God. We are the temple of God in a world that desperately needs to understand who he is. I'm proud of my daughter. She's a sophomore in college, goes to a large public university. And she's had an amazing ministry with a lot of non-Christians there. She has a lot of non-Christian friends, from gay people to people who are struggling. She was at the hospital the other night, two nights ago, with a friend who, who is a non-Christian, who had a boyfriend who rejected her, and now her life's falling apart in She can't handle it, see? But she turns to Jackie. Why? Because she sees something different about Jackie and she knows that whatever happens, Jackie will be there with her and love her and care for her. That's the life of Christ being lived out in her. You see, the only way the world is going to see God today is in us. We are the living temple of God. You and me and us corporately 
together. That's God's plan. Now, the church over history has made some errors. And two of the most common errors are either assimilation or isolation. Assimilation is where we look in our lifestyle, in our thinking, in our values, just like the world around us. We don't stand out, and so no one gets to know who God is. That's a tragedy, and that's all too common in America today. But the other problem is isolation, where you take your church, you know, the other one, assimilation, where you don't even have the steeple, you just make sure you look exactly like the world around you. The isolation is where you build your church way out of town where there's no (laughs) non-Christians. And they never get to see who God is because they're not around it. No, God wants us planted right where we are and He's planted you in the family He's given you, in the job He's given you, in the neighborhood He's given you, so that you could be a living example, Emmanuel, God with us, so people could look at you and say, that's that's who I'm going to go to if I want to know about God. Because there's something different about him or her. So how are you doing? How are you doing as living as the temple of God, his living presence? You know, it's an incredible privilege he's given us to be the living living temple of God. None of us are adequate. But it's also a, a big responsibility to live as he's called us to live. So I encourage you to ask God, Lord, how can I live as the living temple right where you've placed me today? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you've chosen us with all our rough edges, with all the mess in our lives, with all our struggles, to be the living stones that you are building the living temple so that you can dwell among man on earth. Lord, make yourself visible through us and in us individually and as the body of Christ here at Cole or wherever you call us to fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.